Yeah, as you can see, in the month of August, we're looking at the end of the book of Acts, and it's calling this the trial of your life. We're looking at the trials of, of Paul the Apostle there near the end of his life, and see what we can learn from those. We'll finish that series up next week in two weeks. I'm really excited about something on September 3rd, which we do most years. It's called our Back to School Sunday, and we hope you'll be here for that. It'll be a great uh, a great morning to celebrate our passion and vision for the next generation. Uh, but this morning, we're continuing on in our series. And listen, y'all, we've got a treat for you. Y'all don't even know what's coming next. I'll just put it like that. But uh, this morning, I'm so honored. I'm, my heart is so full to be able to introduce to you one of my friends. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Donnell Jones. And Donnell pastors Grace Covenant Church there in Washington, D.C. He's a native uh, folk uh, but Washingtonian, I think is what he's, that's the terminology he used earlier, but he's from DC pastors, a church there. Uh, he travels and speaks at churches and, uh, is in part of our larger every nation church family all over the U S and around the world. And, uh, Donnell's also the character coach you may have heard for the university of Maryland athletic program. And uh, he travels a lot with the football team, the men's basketball team. So he'll be back in a few weeks when the university of Maryland meets the University of Texas right here. Uh, Daryl K. Royal Memorial Field. Yeah, you got a handful of college students here. So uh, he travels with the team and does a lot of work with that athletic program, shaping those young men into men. Uh, but this morning, I'm excited to have him. Donnell and I have been uh, dear friends. He and his wife, Marianne, have five children together. And uh, I don't want to take too much time. I just want to bring him up. I want him to be able to, to communicate and love and minister to us. So you guys, please welcome this morning Donnell Jones. Thank you. Good morning. So good to be in Texas where the steak comes from out back and not off the truck. You guys are amazing. Um, Really, it's an honor to be here. I was here two years ago for our men's retreat and uh, back again for that. And we had a phenomenal weekend. All the men who were there, are you in the room? Uh, It was uh, life-changing. And this is my first time to be here this morning and see your faces. I have been imagining you for the longest time. And to be in the room and actually see your faces is a special thing for me. Um, I love uh, your leadership. I love Morgan and Carrie, and they're four amazing kids. Um, They're extraordinary. Uh, we're, the fact that we have a friendship, and it goes back probably 15 years, but in more recent years, probably the last three, we've gotten really, really close. And so I feel like I'm at home. I really do. And I'm excited to take a moment to share with you. Y'all doing well? Yeah. All right, good. Um, I want to share my family with you since they're not here, so I've got a few pictures. Uh, the first image, that's me and my wife, Marianne, celebrating 26 years of marriage this November. And those are our four girls, uh, four of our five children. So... The oldest was um, our son who, when he moved out, our house became known as the girl's dorm, um, the sea of estrogen. And I lived there, and I know how to navigate those waters really well, and I love it. I love it. It's made me a sensitive man. And so those are our four girls, Mariah, Gabriella, Serena, Makai. And then the next slide is uh, a picture of um, our son, Jonathan, and our uh, next daughter, who married into the family, Jessica, with our granddaughter, Zoe, who uh, is uh, soon to be eight years of age. She loves to roller skate, and so we go roller skating, all of us, once a month. And my wife's from Philly, so she can really roller skate, and 
I get out there and wheel around and try not to fall down, and I'm, I'm okay with that. So we have a great moment. So also I want to recognize one of our leaders who's with us, Chris Boston, if you'll stand. Chris is a great man of God. Um, I met Chris when he uh, was a student at Howard University. He was a senior at the time playing football. And that year, he committed his life to Jesus as Lord. He's been with me ever since. He's married now, three amazing boys, beautiful wife. Um, he's a businessman, but he's more than that. He's a real leader in our church, and he's called to be a pastor, so I take him with me as much as I can. So, Chris, glad you're here. Um, I want to just let you participate in something that I do with my family. I say family, and they go fights together, not each other. And there's a whole story behind it, but we don't have time. So it was just a great way uh, to build something in our household. Now I've shared it at the University of Maryland and other places. So I'm going to say family, and then you say fights together, not each other. You ready? Family. You sound strong. Want to do that again? Yeah. Let's take it up some. Raise the roof. Family. 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 Woo! You're so strong up in here. Mosaic, I love you. All right. Now listen, in church, it's fine to talk back to me, yell, do whatever, okay? Just, there we go. All right. So we are in a series, A Trial of Our Life, and I'm going to begin reading at Acts 26, and um, you can follow along. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand. And began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign countries. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen 
and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Holy Spirit, you're present in this moment. I'm encouraged. Encourage us all. I just pray for a breakthrough moment, a breakthrough moment that only you can do by your spirit. Let our minds be open, our hearts be open. Let your voice be heard with clarity. Let us see you standing here, present beside us, and let your words go deep, deep in us as a people. Amen. Paul finds himself in the trial of his life. He's been given permission to speak for himself, but he does not speak from himself. He speaks from God, and he discovers something in the middle of his trial which helps us in the middle of our trials. Two things. Number one, that God is standing at his side in the trial. And number two, that God is speaking to him and through him to others. And I want you to see this morning that God is doing the same thing with you in your individual trials, but also in the trial that we're walking through collectively. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And Paul understands these two things, and, and because of it, although he's on trial, he's filled with courage, conviction, passion, he's speaking truth in an uncompromising way, he's not filled with anxiety and fear and worry, as is common when someone finds himself in a trial. How is this possible? It's for those two reasons. And why is he on trial? For the hope that he has. Uh, Paul begins to speak about he himself participated in opposing Jesus of Nazareth. He put people in prison. He persecuted them. He punished them. And he was in agreement with them being put to death. And he called them the Lord's people as he's given his testimony before King Agrippa. But at the time that he was persecuting, putting people in prison, punishing them, he did not regard them as God's people. He saw them as people who were separated from God. And he thought himself to be right with God. But he goes further to talk about that moment when he was on that Damascus road and he has an encounter of God where the light shines so brightly and literally he hears the voice of God and he falls to the ground and he will be changed forever from that moment and become a servant with those he had formerly persecuted. Amazing. What's this trial about? 
What's going on here? It's two things. Number one, it's the issue of the Messiah. He speaks about being on trial because of the hope, not only that he has, but the entire nation of Israel. He said it's the hope of the promise that God made that he would send a Messiah who would deliver his people. And so God was faithful to keep his promise. Aren't you glad this morning that we serve a God who keeps his promises? And as he speaks about the promise, he's saying this is a promise that was made to our ancestors, namely a man by the name of Abraham, who you can find in Genesis. God himself, Jesus appears to Abraham and says, through you, I will establish my earthly lineage. So God is at the start and the end of his line. He says through Abraham, it will be through your offspring that the promise will come. And so Abraham has Isaac, but the offspring is not just Isaac. It goes from Isaac to, to, to Jacob to Judah, and it keeps coming all the way, 14 generations to David. And then it goes another four, King David. Then it goes from King David, another 14 generations, all the way down. God is overseeing his promise coming through his line. So as it moves from David, then it goes 14 generations to exile because the people were disobedient. But God's still faithful even when people are disobedient. And then it goes another 14 generations where a young virgin named Mary is, is betrothed to be married to a young man and, and they're going to, Joseph, and they're going to have a baby once they get married. And she shows up and says, guess what? I'm pregnant. And, and they haven't had relations. That's a good man who continues that relationship at that point. And so she gives birth to the Messiah, the same Jesus who appeared to Abraham is now born through Mary. And he's the Messiah. All the scriptures of the Old Testament, all the prophets, Moses, everything spoke to his being birthed. But the nation of Israel could not see that it was him, and so they rejected him, which is why he was crucified. But he didn't just die for the sins of of the nation of Israel. He was dying for the sin of all humanity, meaning Jews and Gentiles. Now, this is important, because he's on trial declaring that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is actually been raised from the dead, furnishing proof that he's the Messiah. And he's declaring this with great passion and boldness and conviction. And so the Pharisees do, they, they believe in resurrection. So that it's, it, we don't have time. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. That's why they were very sad, you see. But the Pharisees did believe in resurrection. And so there's this, all this debates and all this stuff. That was a horrible, corny joke. But in my family, I am master of corny jokes. I win the contest every time. Anyway, so there's this moment where they're, they're, he's, he's speaking to King Agrippa. His sister Bernice is there. I mean, it's pomp and circumstance. They got the military there. They've got the, the noble men of the city are all sitting there, small and greater light, or in this vast audience. Let me tell you, when you find yourself in a trial, usually anxiety hits your head, hits your heart. Worry hits you. Fear hits you. How many know what it's like when that trial hits you and you are overwhelmed? Paul is not overwhelmed in this moment. I'm thinking, dear God, I want to learn how to stand in my trials the way he did. Here's what the trial is about. Two things. Is he the Messiah? If he is the Messiah, and we know he is, then he's the one who causes man to be reconciled to God. But not only that, part two, 
Which is why the guy who interrupts his whole testimony, Festus, says, you are out of your mind. You are insane. All your great learning has made you insane. Because he speaks about the Gentiles. Why would Festus get upset about that? Because the Jews knew that they were the chosen people, but they believed of themselves that they were chosen only, not chosen first. I'm going somewhere, people. When God chose Abraham, he said, through you, I will bless the nations of the world. So Abraham knew generationally that my line is chosen first, but not only to bring the good news of a savior for the entire world. But the Jews believed of themselves that they were chosen only, not just first. And so they rejected the Gentile community. So when Paul is preaching or giving testimony about Jesus being the Messiah, the one who reconciles God, uh, men to God, he's also testifying, and he is the one who reconciles men to men of every nation. Only in Jesus are we reconciled to God, and only in Jesus are we reconciled to people of every ethnicity on the planet. Wow. And they, the, the Jews listening wanted to kill him for it. But God protected him and preserved his life. Two things, and then we'll come back to that. Number one, he knew that God was standing at his side. And number two, he knew that God was speaking to him and through him. Those two things have to be present in every trial we go through. Reconciliation of man to God and reconciliation of man to man. God was interested in a mosaic people. He wanted a mosaic people from the very beginning. I look at you and you are a mosaic. You're every, you're, you're black, you're white, you're Asian, you're this, you're that. And you're reconciled because on Sunday and throughout the week we show up and we of different diversity, etc., all worship the same one God. And when we do so, we make a declaration. You're preaching before anybody ever takes a mic in their hand. Before anybody ever gets up on the stage and says anything, people walk through and go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And they're hearing a little piece of heaven and seeing a little piece of heaven. You with me on this? You are a mosaic people. And so I want you to understand something. Your individual trials are so challenging, but it's not simply because of the individual trial. It's because of the overarching trial of being a reconciled people in a nation that is struggling with the trial of its life. And the enemy knows if he can get you to break down in your individual trial, he could disperse you and lose the bigger game. You hear that? You're an amazing people. There's nobody like you on the earth. So how do you stand in your trial? How do you endure it? How do you handle it all? Here's what Paul did. A couple of verses. First, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Philippians chapter 4. Or four through five. Here's what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What's Paul saying? Rejoice 
in the Lord. How often? How many of you know when you're inspired to rejoice, it requires no effort? Easy. How many of you know when you're in a situation that's challenging, it's a trial, it's really hard to rejoice? Paul's basically saying there's only two times to rejoice, when you feel like it and when you don't. Learn to rejoice when you don't feel like it, and you'll be able to rejoice always. How do you learn to rejoice always? It's this way. The Lord is near. The only way you can rejoice is knowing that God is near. The presence of your trial is not what prevents you from rejoicing. What prevents you from rejoicing is not knowing that Jesus is near in your trial. But when you know he's near in your trial, you can rejoice in the trial because God does something supernatural. Remember when Paul said in one place, God said to me, I wanted him to take this thing away from me, the thorn of my flesh. He said, listen, he prayed it three times. God heard his prayer and God answered in this way. Listen, my grace is sufficient for you because what? My power is made perfect in in weakness. It's not just about power being made. See, God's grace does something. It's sufficient. He doesn't need to remove something from us and he doesn't need to remove us out of a situation. Instead of taking something away, God says, my grace is so sufficient. All I need to do is give you something while you're in it. And then the world sees what it's like when I empower my people in their weakness to stand where no one else can stand. Even in your suffering, in Psalms, David says this way, this is my comfort in my suffering. In other words, he's saying that comfort and suffering are not mutually exclusive. We think of suffering as being something we experience when comfort isn't present. God says, my grace is so strong that I can give you comfort even while you're in your suffering. That you can suffer and yet my comfort will be with you in it. And the world will look at you and go, I don't know how you did that move. That's what grace does. It gives us something. Grace not only saves you, it not only helps you say no to sin, it not only uh, uh, makes you suitable to serve, it also provides something that's sufficient for you to stand. So this is what he is saying to them. The Lord is near. When we don't know the Lord is near, this is the rest of that part. I didn't put it up there for you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The heart is the organ of feeling. The mind is the organ of thought, right? So when anxiety comes, it hits our mind. It hits our heart. And God says, whenever anxiety comes, don't accept it. Be anxious for nothing. There's no situation in life in which God says, okay, for that you can be anxious. He says, as soon as anxiety comes in every situation, what you need to do is begin to say thanks. Give thanks to God for what he did in the last situation. Give God thanks for what he did in the last 15 situations. I tell you what, if you start going back, see, sometimes I have to encourage myself. I don't know about you. I wake up discouraged some days. Some days I don't feel like, Sunday morning, like, man, I don't want to go to church, but I got to preach. So, you know, I, I, I have to encourage myself. So I begin to thank God and say things. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that when I was in my mother's womb and it was hard for her because my dad had separated her and she thought separated from her and she thought about aborting me. You preserved my life. So the fact that I can experience discouragement today is only because you preserved me from the womb. Thank God. I had tuberculosis, but I survived that. And I list 10 things in my life. And by the time I get to nine, I go, I got to pull over on my bike and go, woo. There is a God. And then what I begin to do is make petition about the current requests. And as I do that, his peace begins to come. And it guards the organ of feeling and it guards the organ of thought. And though the situation hasn't changed, I am guarded by peace. Situation hasn't changed. It's like, that dude's got peace. He should not have peace. Why? Do, and then you get anxious because I got peace. 
God's going to make your people a peace in your most challenging trials. He's going to make your people a peace. Paul understood that, and he lived this way. He had no strength of himself. Does that encourage you? All right, let's keep building on that. Here's what he said. We said the Lord is near, right? How near is he? 2 Timothy 4, 16, 18. Paul has gotten so much practice with trials. You know, it's, it's like if you get hit, it's like, man, I got hit. But if you play football, you expect to get hit every single play, right? So as a Christian, you're going to get hit a lot, right? So how are you going to withstand the hit? Paul says this. 2 Timothy, he's writing this letter, chapter 4, 16. He said, at my first defense... No one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. You ever been in a moment where no one supported you? Everybody deserted you and you're left alone in your trial, right? That's when worry, anxiety all hits, right? Here's what he says. May it not be held against them. He wastes no time. He wastes no energy. He wastes no strength holding the situation he's in against those who've deserted him. It is a useless exercise, mental gymnastics, that will not score you any points. He makes no, no, he's just like, you know what? May, may God, may it not be held against them. But, it's a big but here. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. Wait, is that what he says next? Why doesn't he say, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that I could escape this trial? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. When you're in a trial, the first thing you want is out. Yeah. Get me out. But God doesn't just deliver you out. He delivers you through. And you come out different when you go through. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Somebody needed to hear that. You will say, I'm going to come out different. I'm going to come out different. I'm going to come out better. Family, you're strong. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the, mouth, from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he does get out of the trial but he also, but God gets out of the trial what God wants. The message being proclaimed while I'm in the trial, woo, under the anointing of God standing at your side, and then you get out of the trial after you've served the purpose, and you come out different. Oh, God. All right, let's go on. So you have to know that God is standing at your side, right? And then number, the, the, this point is Psalm 29, verse 4 and 11. You ready for this? Love Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. I'm going to say that again. The voice of the Lord is powerful. How powerful is it? Let there be light. He's never had to repeat himself once. Once was enough to sustain it. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Now, if the voice of the Lord is so powerful that when he says, let there be light, and it sustains it, then what happens to you when you hear him speaking to you and through you? The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with what Paul said, peace. So, let's put it all together. When you're in a trial... 
Don't focus on everything you see that's not good. Take note of where Jesus is in the trial. I got to, where, he's in the room. There you are, sitting in the chair. I just needed to know you were here. If Jesus is standing at my side and I hear his voice, which is both powerful and majestic, then I will have strength and peace while I'm in my trial. The issue is some of our past trials have been defined wrongly because we viewed them without seeing Jesus in the middle of the trial. We had an expectation, and then there's a violation of the expectation. We go, God, where were you? Right there in the violation with you, showing you that my strength and my peace is greater than your situation. I want to talk about a past trial in my own life and then how we deal with present trials that may come. How many are in a trial in your life right now? Quite a number of hands. How many have come out of a significant trial? How many know there may be one coming ahead of you? They just seem to recur all the time. You've got to get used to them after a while. He grows you. He makes you strong. So this is a trial from my early childhood. Uh, my parents separated when I was three years of age. They divorced when I was five. I remember being five at the zoo with them, walking in D.C., and I was holding uh, mom's hand and dad's head, and as a five-year-old, I tried to pull their hands together because that was my way of trying to fix our family. I could never make their hands touch, no matter how hard I tried. And by the time I was eight, my father was murdered. And I remember standing at the funeral, and all I could see was people crying, people weeping. It was a dark moment. It was, there was nothing about it. It was the trial of my life at eight years of age. And I remember one moment standing at the coffin, open, looking at my father's remains because he was gone, a man who I'd only seen a handful of times in my life. I can count on one hand the number of moments I've had with my dad. And my grandmother came and stood at my side and she put her arm around me and she said, you're the man of the house now. She had no idea what happened in that moment. When she said, you're the man of the house, I was filled with fear. I was overcome with anxiety. I was, I, I was like, because when she said, you're the man of the house, I looked at him and I was like, how can I be the man of the house? I did not think or feel myself ready to be the man of anybody's house because the one who would teach me how to be a man of the house is gone. And there's no manual, there's no book, there's no nothing. So I, I don't, what does it mean to be the man of the house? And so I think, do I have to change my voice? And so I tried to sound like what I think he would sound like. So I had to make it up. So anxiety and worry and fear became drivers in my life, even from my youth, because words spoken, I heard them in fear, and they affected me adversely. And I thought, where is God? Why would he let my dad die? Why couldn't my parents get back together? See, that's the trial of an eight-year-old who is in that moment thinking God isn't here. And it shaped me because as a boy, since I didn't think I was ready to be the man of the house, growing up, guess what happened? I just, okay, don't cry in front of mom. That's what I do. Try to take care of your little brother. Put the trash out without mom saying it. Then you grow into an adult, and you're about to get married, and this beautiful woman says yes, and you, 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 you're so excited. And then you say, okay, let's get married down the road. And, she's, and you, know, you come up with a list of pros and cons. I have a whole list of cons for why Mary and I should wait. 
And on the other column, I put two pros. One was, you just don't want to. The second one, I can't remember. And so we sat down. I went through every bullet point on my list, this, and this is another reason, and, you know, more money, and this is a better job, da, 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 finish school, da, da, da. And she said, okay. I said, what do you think? Nope, I don't want to wait. <laughs> so we got married in 18 months. But I didn't feel ready to be the man of the house then. And then when they asked me to pastor a church in D.C., I didn't feel ready to be the man of the house. I wasn't like, I want to be a pastor. I want to plant. I was like, I, I don't feel ready. I wasn't even the guy who was supposed to plant the church. The guy who was supposed to plant went did something different. He went and took another job. So my whole life was marked by the sense of never being ready and realizing just last week, guys, I've never shared this because I've told that story many times, but never in this way. God said, while I was sitting at home in my sunroom, I want to walk you back through a memory in your life that wrongly defined you because you didn't see something. And in my mind's eye, I went back to the funeral and I'm standing there and there's my grandmother with her arm around me, standing at my side. And the Lord says, when your father died, he did not have the opportunity to transfer a blessing to you. And what you didn't realize is that I was standing at your side with you and your grandmother, and I put my arm around little eight-year-old Donnell. And I moved your grandmother to say what the Father in heaven was saying. You are the man of the house now. It was never a curse. It was a blessing. But because you didn't see me standing at your side in your trial, you heard it in fear instead of hearing it in faith. My voice was powerful and majestic because I am a father to the fatherless. And you just didn't know that I could take care of you when that one couldn't. I'm shouting and grabbing tissue at the same time. Woo! Oh, my God! Eight-year-old, a trial marked me because I didn't see Jesus standing at my side. And he was there at the funeral, in my trial, in my situation. What am I saying to you? He's been with you in every trial. He's been with you in every situation, in your marriage, in your finances. There's no trial you've gone through where he wasn't present standing at your side. You just didn't see him. You just didn't see him standing there. And you didn't hear him speaking to you and speaking through you, saying, my voice, which is powerful and majestic, will strengthen you and give you peace. My God, do you know how I'm living now the rest of my life? This just happened a week ago, guys. I'm like 51 years old and just got that. <laughs> the first big moment with my dad, I was in my 20s. It, was like 20, it took me 25 years to get the next big moment, right? First 25 years of your life, you think you know everything and you know nothing. Second 25, you realize you know nothing, you start learning, right? Third 25, you realize, I don't have much to say, but I'll try. Some of you are in that place where you viewed your trials wrongly. And I want you to know something. My wife and I went on a cruise. It is amazing. Never done this before in my life. We've traveled around the world. And this marriage moment, cruise. I thought it was going to be one of those big boats with 800 people. We've done that as a family. This was a catamaran yacht, five couples. One couple dropped out and they said, can you guys go? We're like, 
That week is free. We're in. Paid all our expenses. We just had to fly there and back. Living on a cruise, they won't let you pick up a, 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 any, you can't do any work. They feed you, you're snorkeling three times a day. At the end of seven days, Mary's like, do we have to go back? I'm like, I know what you mean. Yeah. But we got kids. We have a church. Yes. The closer the boat got to land, we're like, Lord. <laughs> but while we were on that cruise, the captain said something because some of us got sick, dizzy, nausea, even with the patches, etc. No, nobody with the patches got sick. That's another story. But he said, when you get far enough out where you can't see any land and everything's moving, your inner ear, the semicircular canals, all that which controls your motion and movement, it starts going in such a way that when your eyes can't find land or a fixed point, you start to feel nauseous and dizzy in the storm or on the boat or what's going on. He says, but if your eyes can find a fixed point, if your eyes can find a rock, even though your ears are telling you we're still moving, this is crazy, your eyes will inform your ears, I got you, it's okay. He said that to the right person. (laughs) Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. In other words, when you're in your trial and you're starting to feel nauseous and you're starting to feel dizzy and you're feeling like you're turned over and upside down, you just got to go, where are you, Jesus? Where are you in this storm? There he is. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, this trial is not over. It's still moving, but you're like this. Oh, yeah. Okay, God. As long as you, woo. Yeah. Keep your eyes on him. I'm not taking my eyes off Jesus. And as long as you keep your eyes on him, You'll be all right in your trial, and he'll speak to you, and he'll speak through you. Somebody ought to receive that. When I think about where our nation is going through, I want Pastor Morgan to come stand beside me. We did not plan this. We, We are friends... We pastor churches, and we live in a nation that does not know how to do this thing right. You are a mosaic people. You're making a declaration to our nation and to the world that God chose us all to be reconciled to him and one another. And your trial is, we will declare We will declare to this city, we will declare to this nation that we are reconciled people. Because though we are different in our ethnicity, we are clothed by Christ exactly the same way. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. Clothed with humility. Clothed with forgiveness. Clothed with patience. Clothed with the Spirit of God. We don't have to lose our diversity. We don't have to lose our difference. We would lose each other, except that God clothed us and made us one. Come on!